You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Welcome to the seventh episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich, and here with me is my just-arrived-back-home co-host. Her name is Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. So, we're a couple of days late with this episode, but I have a good excuse, and that excuse is that it's Tracy's fault. Hey! Well, you were the one that was out of town. And, you know, I thought of just recording the show myself over the weekend, so it would go out on time, but... I figured all you listeners out there would be willing to wait a couple of days for a new episode if it meant you could avoid having to listen to just me drone on about the war in Mexico. People would have loved to listen to just you. I sincerely doubt that. Okay. So, before we get rolling, we just wanted to point out that today, New Year's Day 2013, is the 150th anniversary of Abraham Lincoln issuing the Final Emancipation Proclamation. That's right. On January 1st, 1863, Lincoln followed up the preliminary proclamation, which he'd released in September 1862. And President Lincoln faced quite a bit of criticism and negative pushback after he did that in September. So a lot of people didn't think he would issue the final proclamation on January 1st. But he did. And by doing so, he showed a great deal of moral courage. I agree. Um, but we'll cover that whole story farther down the road in the podcast, like when we actually get to the Civil War and then to 1863. So we better keep moving. All right, so Trace and I were talking about episode six um, after we'd finished that show, and we realized we probably should have included a certain story in that show. It's a Jefferson Davis, Zachary Taylor, pre-Mexican War story, and it's actually a very interesting connection between the two men. So we're going to start th- this uh, episode with it and say we're sorry we didn't share it last time. As we mentioned last time, Jefferson Davis was a West Point graduate, class of 1828. After his graduation from the United States Military Academy, Davis was assigned to the 1st Infantry Regiment. He met and fell in love with a girl named Sarah, who was the 17-year-old daughter of his commanding officer. Davis's commanding officer and Sarah's father was none other than Zachary Taylor. And against Taylor's objections, Jefferson Davis and Sarah Knox Taylor married in June 1835. But both of the newlyweds caught malaria that summer while visiting Jefferson Davis's sister. And sadly, Sarah died on September 15th, just three months after the couple's wedding. 
Davis, having resigned his commission in the Army before his marriage to Sarah, after her death became a successful planter in Mississippi and then entered politics. In 1845, he won a seat in the House of Representatives as a Democrat. That same year, Davis married a woman named Verena Howell. When the Mexican War began in 1846, Davis resigned his seat in Congress so he could go to war as the colonel of the 1st Mississippi Rifles. And it was while they were serving together in Mexico that Zachary Taylor is said to have told Jefferson Davis, My daughter, sir, was a better judge of men than I was. That's such a sad story. It is, and we should have shared it last time, but being a guy, I guess I just got too caught up in all the war stuff and didn't think about the romance stuff, but I'm glad we shared that story this time. Me too. Okay, so previously on the podcast, we discussed the fighting out west in New Mexico and California, such as it was, and then we talked about a different kind of battle that raged in Congress over something called the Wilmot Proviso. We then hooked back up with Zachary Taylor down south on the Rio Grande, and we covered the capture of Monterey and then the American victory at the Battle of Buena Vista in February 1847. Right, and I promised that this episode we'd get to the dramatic march on Mexico City, so that's what we're going to do. Well, as we said last time, after President Polk decided that the war would have to be carried to the enemy's capital, he offered Major General Winfield Scott command of the American force that would eventually land at Veracruz in March 1847. Well, born in 1786 in Virginia, by the time war with Mexico broke out, Scott was already a legend. At six foot five and always decked out in a splendid uniform, Scott was the very picture of a, sh- of a soldier. He was commissioned a captain of artillery in 1808 and then, in the War of 1812, he started out as a lieutenant colonel, and by that war's end, when he was still only 28 years old, he was breveted a major general. Well, Scott stayed in the military after that war, and so in 1846, at the age of 60, he was general-in-chief of the U.S. Army. At New Orleans, Scott whipped his army of raw volunteers into shape, and for the invasion, his force was strengthened by siphoning off the best troops from Zachary Taylor's force. Then on March 9, 1847, in a daring amphibious assault, boatload after boatload of American soldiers landed on the beach just south of Veracruz. By nightfall, over 10,000 men had been put ashore without a single major mishap. Rather than carry Veracruz by infantry assault, Scott decided to subject the walled city to a siege. It took Scott a while to get the heavy artillery he needed ashore and in action, but once the American guns began firing on the city, the Mexicans couldn't hold out for very long, and Veracruz surrendered to Scott on March 27th. A young artillery lieutenant named Thomas Jonathan Jackson took part in the bombardment of Veracruz. Veracruz was an important city and port on Mexico's Gulf Coast, so its capture was a significant victory for the Americans but Scott's larger objective was to conquer a peace by advancing on Mexico City, about 190 miles to the west as the crow flies. And so, with that goal in mind, and wanting to get the bulk of his army out of the unhealthy coastal area as soon as possible anyway, Scott left a small garrison in Veracruz and sent the rest of his men marching inland up the National Highway. On April 11th, at a steep mountain pass about 60 miles from Veracruz, 
the American advance guard came upon an extremely strong Mexican defensive position near the mountain of Cerro Gordo. The position was occupied by troops under the command of Santa Ana, who, as we mentioned in the last episode, had hurried south after the Battle of Buena Vista, and then he'd cobbled together yet another Mexican army to face the American invaders. So, to oppose Scott's advance, Santa Ana had about 12,000 troops and 43 pieces of artillery. And the Mexican leader had chosen his spot well. It was where the national highway was dominated on each side by steep hills, and his flank on one side was protected by a substantial mountain stream, and then his other flank was covered by a deep ravine. But a reconnaissance on April 13th by some American engineer officers discovered a path that led around the left flank of the Mexican army's seemingly impregnable position. Lieutenants P.G.T. Beauregard and Joseph E. Johnston took part in that reconnaissance. Winfield Scott arrived on the scene on April 14th and asked an engineer officer who had come up from Veracruz with him to check out his promising route around the Mexican left. That officer was a captain named Robert E. Lee. Setting out the next day, Lee confirmed that the path would carry an American force around the Mexican flank. Despite that advantage, on Saturday, April 17th and Sunday, April 18th, Scott's outnumbered army of 8,500 Americans still had to engage in fierce fighting during their assault to pry the enemy out of their positions at Cerro Gordo. But in the end, the Americans were able to overcome the strong Mexican resistance and win the battle. When a detachment of American troops using that route around the enemy flank cut the road behind them Mexicans, Santa Ana's carriage was destroyed, and he had to scramble to find a horse on which to flee the battlefield. But the Mexican leader was fortunate just to escape, since his army disintegrated into a great disordered mass of defeated soldiers fleeing westward in panic, and from among those who couldn't run fast enough, the Americans captured 3,000 prisoners. Besides those prisoners, the Mexicans suffered about 1,100 casualties, while the Americans lost 431 men, including 63 dead. After his victory at Cerro Gordo, Winfield Scott would have liked to press on immediately and take Mexico City, but that door was closed to him by factors beyond his control. This was because in May 1847, several regiments of 12 months volunteers had to leave the army, heading back down to Veracruz, and from there they were shipped back to New Orleans, where they were mustered out of service. Several regiments of new volunteers were supposed to be arriving to replace those lost troops, but the reinforcements were slow in getting to Mexico. Nevertheless, now with only about 7,000 men, Scott decided to split his army and said, send General William J. Worst's division ahead to occupy Puebla, which was Mexico's second-largest city and only about 70 miles from the enemy capital. Worth arrived at Puebla on May 15th, and since he hadn't encountered any resistance, Scott decided to move the rest of his army up to that city on May 28th. After moving up to Puebla, Winfield Scott had to wait for those reinforcements to arrive but he started to have trouble maintaining his long, thin line of communications back to Veracruz. Mexican guerrillas along the National Highway were making it too dangerous for the Americans to move supply convoys along the road unless the wagons had sizable escorts. But throughout the summer of 1847, 
those new volunteer regiments did arrive in Mexico, and after making the increasingly perilous journey up the highway from Veracruz, they joined the army at Puebla. Some of those reinforcements were under the command of Brigadier General Franklin Pierce, a politician from New Hampshire who had volunteered for the war and who later on, in 1853, becomes the 14th President of the United States. Winfield Scott was forced to cool his heels in Puebla for three long months. By August, though, the American army there had been built up to some 14,000 men. Meanwhile, Santa Ana had managed to cobble together yet another Mexican army to face the American invaders. To defend Mexico City, Santa Ana had about 36,000 men and 100 cannon. In August, finally ready to move on the enemy capital, General Scott didn't want to lose the large number of men it would take to adequately garrison his long, vulnerable line of communications back to Veracruz. So the American commander made a momentous decision. He would simply abandon his link to the coast, and the American army would strike out for Mexico City with no supply line. When President Polk received news of Scott's move, he disapproved, saying it was, quote, a great military error, end quote. When the news of Scott's desperate move reached England, no less an authority on military matters than the elderly Duke of Wellington declared, quote, Scott is lost. He has been carried away by his successes. He can't take the city, and he can't fall back on his bases, end quote. But in central Mexico, far from the naysayers, Scott had organized his 14,000 men into four divisions, one under Brevet Major General Worth, another under Brigadier General David E. Twiggs, a third under Major General Gideon J. Pillow, and a fourth under Brigadier General John A. Quitman. And then on Saturday, August 7, 1847, Scott's lead division, Twiggs' men, marched out of Puebla. Now make no mistake, Winfield Scott was really rolling the dice. He was cutting himself off from his line of communications, and his tiny force, deep in an enemy country, was marching against a more numerous enemy army. So he was basically breaking every rule in the military strategy book. Well, shoot, he was pretty much just throwing the book away. So all of that's to say that it's really hard to overstate the sheer boldness of Scott's advance on Mexico City. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Meanwhile, back in Washington, D.C., besides the sectional tension over the Wilmot Proviso, there was a plain old political battle along party lines that flared up since there were many Whigs who distrusted President Polk's motivations in taking the United States into a war with Mexico. That's because they could see right through his dark little expansionist heart. (sighs) Rich! (laughs) Okay, okay. Do we need to tell folks that the Whigs, W-H-I-G-S, were one of the major political parties back in the olden days? Um, sure. We can tell people that the Whigs, W-H-I-G-S, were one of the major American political parties back in the olden days. Anyway... Polk and his allies did their best to paint those who spoke out against the conflict with Mexico as unpatriotic. Nevertheless, there were some in the opposition party in Congress who openly questioned how the U.S. came to be at war with its weaker neighbor to the South. One of those vocal critics was a tall, gangly freshman Whig congressman from Illinois named Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln rose from his seat in the House of Representatives on at least two occasions and stubbornly argued that the war with Mexico was unprovoked and unnecessary. In seeking answers from the Polk administration as to the cause of the war, Lincoln said, quote, Let the President answer the interrogatories I proposed. Let him answer fully, fairly, candidly. Let him answer with facts and not with arguments. Let him remember he sits where Washington sat. And so, remembering, let him answer as Washington would answer. So let him attempt no evasion, no equivocation. End quote. Well, President Polk didn't pay much attention to the earnest squawking of a small fry first-term congressman from out west. And, unfortunately for Lincoln, his criticism of the president and of the war with Mexico was unpopular with his constituents back home in Illinois very unpopular with his constituents back home in Illinois, so much so that Lincoln pledged not to seek re-election. And so, when his one term in office expired, Abraham Lincoln headed back to Springfield to resume practicing law. Back in Mexico, Winfield Scott's risky advance on the enemy capital proceeded, with the American troops living off the land and not really facing any resistance at all. Then on August 12th, when his army was about 20 miles from Mexico City, Scott faced a choice about which route to take toward the city. He could continue on the national highway and go straight in, or there were three other routes available to him. Based on intelligence gathered by Robert E. Lee, Scott decided to leave the main road and approach Mexico City from the southwest. Not expecting the Americans to take that route, Santa Ana was forced to redeploy his forces on a new defensive line to meet the threat from the south. By August 18th, after a 25-mile march to the south along muddy roads, the Americans were at San Augustine and oriented along their new axis of advance, 
and only nine miles from Mexico City. On the 18th, Scott sent Worth's division northward toward the city. Some dragoons leading the American advance reached San Antonio and came under heavy artillery fire. A round from one of Santa Ana's guns killed Seth Thornton, the unlucky cavalryman whose ambush and capture on the Rio Grande 16 months earlier had started the shooting war between Mexico and the U.S. After that, the American advance ground to a halt in the face of heavy Mexican fire, and General Worth sent word to Winfield Scott that San Antonio could not be outflanked since a treacherous field of sharp black lava rock formations lay to the west, and to the east, the water that covered the ground was too deep to advance through. Scott decided to skirt the impassable lava field to the west, and Robert E. Lee was once more instrumental in scouting out a route of advance. On the morning of the 19th, under Lee's supervision, soldiers hacked out a rough road along the route he had scouted through the rocks. After moving along that route, the American assault force ran into stiff opposition and had a difficult time actually getting clear of the lava field, and as darkness fell, the issue was still in doubt. But early on the morning of August 20th, when the Americans renewed their attack, a sharp, short fight was enough to send the tired and dispirited Mexicans retreating northward toward the city. In the face of this defeat, which unhinged his entire defensive line, Santa Ana decided to rally what troops he could and pull them back behind Mexico City's walls. But to do that, he had to hold, hold open the key bridge at Charbusco so that his soldiers could retreat northward and get into the city. An American force was working its way around north of the bridge to outflank it, but not knowing how long that maneuver would take and wanting to keep up the close pursuit of the Mexicans, Around noon on the 20th, Scott ordered an all-out assault on Cherubusco, even though there had been no reconnaissance made of the bridge's defenses. Well, it turned out the bridge's defenses were formidable, and the Mexicans defended them fiercely. In some vicious fighting in which the bayonet was used liberally, the Americans managed to battle through to the bridge. When the stubborn Mexican defenders finally broke, some American cavalry pursued them right up to the gates of the city. Two of the bold dragoons involved in that pursuit were Captain Philip Kearney and Lieutenant Richard S. Yule. There, outside the gates of Mexico City, Kearney was hit by musket fire, and his mangled left arm had to be amputated. Later on in our story, in 1862, General Dick Yule, fighting for the Confederacy, will be severely wounded and lose a leg in August of that year. And then just a month later, in September of 1862, General Phil Kearney, fighting for the Union, will be killed at Chantilly. Although he had brought his army right up to the gates of the enemy capital, Winfield Scott hoped to prevent any further casualties, such as might happen if he actually had to make a costly assault on the city. So, after Cherubusco, he agreed to a truce, which would allow President Polk's envoy, a fellow named Nicholas Trist, to meet with the Mexicans and hash out the terms of a peace treaty. It was Santa Ana who had proposed the truce, but he probably only did so in the belief that it would buy him some time to reorganize his troops and set up an effective defense of the city. Sure enough, when peace negotiations between Trist and the Mexican commissioners failed to make any progress, Hostilities resumed on September 7th. 
The next day, the 8th, an American assault force under General Worth moved out to storm the Molino del Rey and the Casa de la Mata, which were two of the main enemy fortifications that defended the southwest approaches to Mexico City. The Americans succeeded in capturing the Mexican positions, but at a frightful cost. Worth's force suffered 116 dead and 671 wounded. Scott next turned his attention to the castle of Chapultepec, which was the third main enemy defensive position blocking the American advance. Scott hoped to reduce the castle by artillery fire alone, but when that approach failed, the American infantry went forward against the walls of Chapultepec on September 13th. Select troops, all regulars, were organized into two forlorn hopes. These were the brave men who would be the point of the spear, the first to assault the castle's walls and draw the enemy's fire. When the assault went in on the morning of September 13th, the Mexican defenders, including a group of teenage cadets from a military school, proved they were just as courageous and determined as the American attackers. In the bitter fighting for the castle, Joseph E. Johnston led his men over the south wall and a young lieutenant named Louis Armistead also took part in the assault on the castle's walls. The bravery that Lieutenant Armistead showed that day in Mexico was no fluke, because down the road in our story, General Armistead will be mortally wounded on July 5, 1863, as he courageously leads his brigade against strong Union defenses at a small Pennsylvania town named Gettysburg. Two other men whose names will forever be linked to that famous Confederate attack at Gettysburg were also in the thick of the fight at Chapultepec. During the storming of the castle when James Longstreet was wounded while carrying the colors of the 8th Infantry, another officer, George Pickett, took up the regiment's flag and carried it forward. And during the fighting that day outside the gates of Mexico City, Thomas Jackson distinguished himself with the way he handled his artillery battery with reckless courage. And then nearby, in an attack on one of the city gates, Ulysses S. Grant gained fame by commandeering a mountain howitzer, ordering it hauled up a church belfry, and from that unique vantage point, opening fire on the startled Mexican defenders. That night, Santa Ana decided to evacuate the capital. Some skirmishing would take place throughout the next morning, but by midday on September 14, 1847, General Scott could ride in triumph into Mexico City's main square. So there was still a peace treaty to negotiate, but with the capture of Mexico City, for all intents and purposes, hostilities between Mexico and the U.S. were over. We hope you don't mind that we've taken several shows to cover the war with Mexico, but besides being a crucial episode in the escalating tension over the expansion of slavery, the war is also noteworthy because of the number of young American officers who fought in it and who would then go on to some measure of fame in the Civil War. For that select group of young men, mostly graduates of the United States Military Academy at West Point, the war in Mexico was really their proving ground, their rite of passage, if you will, as warriors. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation for this episode is The Class of 1846, From West Point to Appomattox, Stonewall Jackson, George McClellan, and Their Brothers, by John C. Waugh. 
Now, in this book, I think Wad does a great job of showing the experience and abilities of this group of classmates while they're at West Point, and then also during their time in the war with Mexico. Uh, and then with the Civil War, as the titles kind of suggest, he mostly narrows his focus to Jackson and McClellan. But all in all, it's still a great read and well worth checking out. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations by going to the show's website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. Next time, we'll cover the aftermath of the war and see what the U.S. plans on doing with all that land President Polk has just grabbed from Mexico. But before we wrap things up here with episode number seven, I just want to apologize to anyone who tried to find episode number six on iTunes and you were unable to do so for a while. Uh, For some reason, it took that episode about five days to appear on iTunes. Usually when I upload a new show to our server, it'll appear on iTunes within a few hours. But I guess episode six experienced some kind of hiccup with the iTunes service, so sorry about that. But if that ever happens again, you can always check the show's website or the Facebook page, since I always put up direct links in those places for folks to download the show without having to go through iTunes. But for those of you who do listen to the show through iTunes, we just want to say thank you to those of you who have written us those great five-star reviews. Several of you have taken the time to do that on iTunes, and we really appreciate that. Yes, definitely. Thank you. The music you hear at the beginning and end of each show is from a song called Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of the folks at Spiritwood Music. And with that, thank you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again for episode number eight. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.